You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. I'm Calvin, and you're listening to Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. This show is an experiment in civility, gathering people who disagree to sit down face-to-face and having them discuss their disagreements. Do we ever arrive at consensus? Sometimes. What's most important is we've got the conversation started. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. I am your host, Calvin Moore. And per usual, I am here with my co-hosts, Kent Strait and Steve Phelps. What's going on, guys? How you been? Gentlemen? I've uh, been just great, Calvin, because it is, it is coming up on the fall. It's my, my favorite time of the year. I'm going to grab on with both hands as long as I can to every black and white movie from the 50s. Dr. You might Sardonicus. say... You might say uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It is the most wonderful time of the year. Be- every Bella Lugosi movie, uh, it's all happening. I'm yep. getting excited. Uh, tomorrow or Tuesday, the house is getting uh, decorated in Halloween stuff. And oh. that's just what we do. You do know that it's September, right? Just you, you know what? I can't control the calendar. I can control when I start doing things, though, and that's how I extend it. Here's the here's the best part about, about Steve decorating the house for Halloween on what will that be September fifteenth? Yeah. Steve, yeah, Steve Steve gets unironically upset with his kids if they listen to a single note of Christmas music yes, before absolutely. before Thanksgiving. No no, no 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 no. There's a rule: uh, first snow or oh, Thanksgiving. Okay. All right. Last year it was like November second, legitimately. Oh, then that's fine. I thought yeah, it was yeah. bra- I thought it was Black Friday. That was the first day of Christmas no, music, no, no, no matter no, what. No, no, okay, no. I'm not a fine. fascist. I'm Come not on. a monster. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's great. Okay, so well, I know first snow's okay. Uh, I spent the the day out on a boat. Uh, kind of the it was warmer than we thought it would be. We just did a kind of a slow five mile an hour trek up the Clinton River. Uh, got off at a uh, restaurant that uh, definitely was breaking the law uh, when uh, all the bars were them right here? <laughs> They were definitely, names? no, I'm not naming names. I'm not okay. naming Addresses? names. Okay. They were 1,000% uh, open during uh-huh. uh, uh, when all the bars were shut down here in Michigan. <laughs> um, but they, they're right off the river. So if you look at the front, the building didn't look like it was open. But uh, people so were- So what, you can pull your- there. You can pull your boat up to the restaurant. Okay. You know, I have a lot of restaurants like that. I have uh, Um, I have canoed up and down the Clinton River several times, and I think I know the restaurant you're talking about. I can take a guess, but we won't do that here. Yeah. No. Yeah. You can you can guess. (laughs) Um, But uh, there were a number of uh, political flags hanging from boats, uh, which was interesting uh, to see. A number Uh, number of green at the bottom of the river. Actually, at at one of the. at one of the no no yeah there were a lot of green Jill party Stein. flags. Jill Stein. Uh, tomorrow at a restaurant called Bumpers, which is right off the water, um, Don Junior is going to be in town, and Kid Rock is going to be like down the street from his house, I guess. Um, and they're doing a political rally at this at this restaurant, which is kind of interesting. Bumpers. But, yeah, bumpers. Never heard of bumpers. Yeah, well, you know, I had never heard of it unless you have a boat. <laughs> You really right. don't know about these places. But anyway, uh, another fun story. Then we'll, we'll kick off this episode uh, properly. So I do another podcast. And I'm sorry, Kent, Kent, Kent and I have made a pact where I don't really swear on this podcast anymore. Sure. I'm going to have one swear word in, in this podcast. One, one for sure. Um, but there is a, uh, another show that I do called Shot of History. And that's the drunk one. That's where you get progressively. We, we do several right. episodes in one sitting. You can always tell which episode is number one. And which episode is like number seven? 
because number seven is just no. a train wreck. So, because uh, I like of, my history done by inebriated people, that's yes, how I it's, it's, it's fun. So, I mean, that's my major, but every now and again, I get to host one of the episodes, and anybody who knows me knows that I have a, uh, a disdain for Thomas Jefferson. I'm not a huge fan of Thomas Jefferson for a number of reasons. I'll tell you and, what, I, I myself have adopted a real fuck Jefferson mentality. <laughs> Okay, oh, he so used you already it. said he used it. it. You just ruined it. it. You, you can't do you it, Calvin. But Gotta either way, the PG-13. at the end of every episode, that is what I say. Thank you, Kent. <laughs> and um, I had a friend of mine who, his name's Brian, and he listens to the show. And he showed up at my door the other day. I'm working from home right now. So he showed up at the door, and he had a bag. And in the bag was a bottle of Jefferson Reserve <laughs> uh, bourbon whiskey and a glass with, uh, I don't know if you guys can see that, that's Thomas Jefferson. It is. On it. For those on, at home, he is showing us a glass with uh, Thomas Jefferson. I don't know if you can see, but it says F. Jefferson on it. So Very nice. I thought Classy. it was lovely. Classic. Uh, he did give us the original books for the Library of Congress, but I digress. Also, um, so, uh, either way, that has nothing to do with this episode. We are continuing our election 2020 coverage. Uh, we have done episodes about how elections work. We have done episodes about education. We have done episodes about foreign policy. Now we're doing an episode about uh, environmentalism. And uh, to that end, we have on two really great guests on what I would consider to be probably opposite sides of the spectrum, but also still kind of having this conversation uh, around the same uh, issues of environmentalism. Uh, so uh, first up, we have a guest who's never been here before. Uh, and <clears throat> his name is uh, Quillen Robinson. You go by Quill, right? I go by Quill. Go by Quill. All right. So uh, Quill works for the American Conservation Coalition. Uh, they are a 501c3, uh, C4 nonprofit organization dedicated to mobilizing young people around environmental action through common sense, market-based, and limited government ideals. ACC was founded in June 2017 by a group of millennials who saw an ideological gap in the environmental movement preventing necessary bipartisan action. Uh, Quill is a graduate of the University of Washington in Seattle. As an undergraduate, Quill gained experience working on political campaigns, interning in the U.S. Senate, and conducting research for a local free market think tank. After graduating in 2018, he studied and worked in Germany for a year as a fellow with the Congress Budenstag Youth Exchange for Young Professionals. Quill, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, yeah, Quill, I just what I took away from that is that you were in some sort of German youth organization, which has great... <laughs> Great historical precedence. That is not um, where we were no, going with that. This, this oh. is a tough start, man. You're already okay. All right, that, that's <laughs> rough. Uh, I, I didn't finish reading this because a, a few things, obviously, to connect uh, to the to the topic. Uh, Seattle native, uh, grew up backpacking, skiing, fly fishing in the Cascades. Uh, you enjoy reading history, collecting maps. Awesome, by the way, uh, and occasionally escaping DC to visit a new national park. Uh, as a government affairs director for the ACC, he's excited to connect ACC students with their representatives in Washington and turn ACC's bold vision into real policy uh, policy solutions. So thank you so much for, for being here. Um, and then next up, we have Dr. Moshkan Rajai. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did, yes. Great job. Excellent. Uh, she is a at-large member of the Michigan Environmental Council. Uh, she joined the MEC in 2019. She is the Assistant Director of Public Health 
for Oakland University's Department of Public and Environmental Wellness in its School of Health Sciences. Rajai teaches courses on environmental health, environmental justice, and public health while coordinating the graduate practicum experience. Uh, she researches how marginalized populations are exposed to environmental pollution. She's currently focused on stressors and health outcomes for public school teachers and subsistence fishing. And I'm going to go down a little bit further. Here we go. Ferndale resident bolsters her work with a bachelor's degree in global studies, master's degree in environmental policy and planning, master's degree in environmental quality and health, and a doctorate in environmental health sciences. She also serves on Osabel Institute, American Public Health Association, International Society for Environmental Epidemiology, and Ferndale Environmental Sustainability Commission. Okay, so you do a lot of things, a lot of hats, a lot of backpacking there. Calvin, I'm hoping, I'm hoping in the future you can backpacking. Calvin, in in the future, just mental note: try and get smarter guests. I, you know, I try. I try so hard. I just got to scrape the bottom of the barrel with these two. It's only going up from here, right? I'll just make um, one correction, though. I am not the assistant director of the public health program. I am a uh, assistant professor in the public health program. Ah, okay. I don't want to usurp the role of. They got it wrong on the Michigan Environmental. Well, their uh, website to check that. Up, update that so let's let's dive right into questions thank you both for being here i think this is going to be a, a great uh, conversation but just to kind of start out um moshkan if i recall correctly you've been on the show i know you've been on the show before but yes. you would identify probably more politically as uh liberal or progressive correct generally yes okay mm-hmm. and quill uh i know that the acc is generally more conservative, probably Republican leaning, correct? Yeah, absolutely. We But we work with students kind of across the political spectrum, okay. but generally I'd say right of center, yeah. Okay, awesome. Um, so uh, that brings me to the, the first official question for the show then. How would uh, either of you, and we don't have to go in any particular order, I mean, there's only two of you, so, um, but how would uh, you define the term environmentalism? You know, honestly, Calvin, I, I kind of don't like the, the, the term environmentalism because mm-hmm. for me, um, I, I think of folks in tie-dye t-shirts wearing Birkenstocks who smell of patchouli. And so that's not really my image of what I do and then sort of like the young people that I work with. And so I actually, I, I like the idea of conservation. I think that that's a really good word. And that's something that I think of. And what that, what that means to me is, um, you know, as it relates to our natural environment, conserving, holding on to, preserving the natural, um, you know, the natural beauty of our country and the world. And, um, you know, there's a lot that can go into that, but that's, that's the word conservation is the one that I really hold on to, obviously in the name ACC. Yeah. I mean, I kind of have a similar view in some ways uh, that conservation is at the heart of environmentalism. Uh, But at the same time, I guess I, I don't mind the the label of environmentalism or environmentalist. I do agree that there have been times where that label has negative hippie, you know, tree hugger connotations. Like these are people who tie themselves to a tree. Um, And it also can be limiting because it, like it assumes that people who are environmentalists care about the environment. And, And I also like being in the environment, I remember when I was like early in the environmental, kind of my environmentalism, and people were like, well, don't you care about people? And I'm like, wait, that's why I'm it. That's why I'm an environmentalist is because I care about people. And so I think people do a very literal transition, like translation or definition of environmentalism as like, it's about caring about the environment and that's it. And it's about conserving the environment. And we don't, we don't think about it in this, like it actually has like tentacles that go much further. Uh, so it's about conservation. I don't mind the label. 
I think, I do think there's a shift happening and people are, are not just thinking like granola hippies as much anymore. So it's less negative, um, uh, but yeah, it, it's largely about conservation and preservation and kind of great ecological health is the goal. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny, Quill, um, <laughs> the, the, the word picture you painted, like smelling like patchouli, I'm like, I, I'm thinking like the dirty dreads, the tie-dye shirts and the dirty dreads as well. And like you said, the Birkenstock. Um, but I liked uh, the way that uh, both of you uh, define that. So let's, uh, let's move forward with the, with the conversation, Kent. Uh, uh, Moshkan. Uh, this question is for you. Do you, do you, as the daughter of an immigrant, um, and do you, has that given you a particular perspective in terms of how you uh, think of the global environment? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, I have one parent who's an immigrant. Um, the other one is a couple a few centuries okay. old oh. immigrants to the United States uh so it goes kind of both spectrums and I think when you're a child of an immigrant you like you think about other countries uh, a little bit more like from the get-go right I was I was always thinking that um since my father's from Iran like Middle East politics those things just generally relate to family members I know and, and things like that but uh but it didn't really shape my environmental perspective per se. I think what it did is it shaped my global perspective generally. And my global perspective of the world has shaped my environmental perspective because the environment, there are no political boundaries, you know, like that doesn't matter. And so it pro like my initial answer when I thought about this question, I was like, not really. But in, in reality, it shaped my perspective of the world, which then shapes my environmentalism. Uh, yeah. In your in either of your um, experiences, I mean, do you see uh, the United how the United people in the United States view environmentalism or conservative uh, you know conservation? Uh, do we do it differently than uh, people in Europe, Asia, Africa, uh, another continents, uh, or do you find it's very similar? You know, I, I guess I could speak to this a little bit from the perspective that I was not part of a German youth organization, just to be clear. <laughs> I, I spent a year. Living, <laughs> you, you got me on that one. Um, so I, I spent a year living in Germany um, at, right after college. And that actually it gave me a really interesting kind of comparative study of U.S. environmentalism um, and European environmentalism. And it looks very differently there. I mean, I think that each each country has a, a rich history and a rich environment to draw from, and that's part of the culture in one way or another. But something that, that really stands out to me is that um, the environment in, in the U.S., you know, there's these great wild spaces um, in the U.S., and that's something that's so ingrained in our history. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the whole idea of national parks, um, the, the original conservationist movements and, you know, in sort of like the 1800s and that sort of thing, a lot of that is fundamentally American. Um, and had an impact on the rest of the world. And, you know, I, I think that there is something unique about the U.S. history with conservation. Um, and, of course, it looks different in different places, but I think that it's sort of unique in the sense that the U.S. is actually where a lot of conservation stemmed from, and there's that's something that's been adopted around the world. So that's just a little bit on, you know, from, from my perspective. Yeah, one of the things I... Uh... When I think of like U.S. culture, um, 
I tend to think that we mentally divorce ourselves from the land and its resources pretty significantly. And our relative wealth has allowed us to do that um, because we don't, you know, we have AC in summer when it's hot. We have plentiful heat in winter. Most people do, I should say. Some people do not. Uh, and so you, you literally insulate yourselves from extremes, but also we don't feel, you know, we hear about flooding. So in Michigan, like there's flooding and it destroys farms or these early freezes destroy the cherry crop. And we are like, oh, those poor farmers. But guess what? We can still eat cherries, you know, and we're still going to, if you can afford it, you can eat cherries. And so I think it, this isn't just the U.S. I, I'm thinking from the U.S. I don't, I don't have as much perspective on European culture and, and some other cultures, but that's the perspective I think in the U.S. is we, we forget, we have forgotten some of the natural limitations and the fact that what is happening <laughs> physically in the world matters versus, especially in lower income countries, uh, what happens matters. Um, I've worked with, I did some, some uh, research work uh, and work with small scale gold miners and subsistence farmers in rural Ghana in West Africa. And you know, it's fascinating because I'll talk with folks. I, I talked with folks who, who didn't have beyond like a third grade education. You ask them about climate change, none of them doubt climate change, right? They don't know, they don't understand the science. They don't necessarily, right? They don't have the science background or education background for that, but they know climate change because they see it in real time. Because for them, if the rainy season is too late, their farms fail. If it's too early, it fails. If it rains too much, it's their farms fail or too little, right? And that means mm -hmm. they've lost their main source of income potentially that year um, and source of food rather not just income. So I think that like the income and, and insulation we can provide changes how we do environmentalism. So, so much can you, you mentioned um, the, uh, you know, uh, farmers in, in Ghana and other places in the world. Um, how are marginalized communities more susceptible to environmental changes here in the United States and in urban areas? Oh, they definitely are. Any, I think that's a big question. Uh, there are a lot of impacts. Um, the, the same thing happens. I think it's easy to talk about these global differences because the extreme, like the differences are more extreme. But even within the United States, there are differences in uh, income, right? Poverty those who are way beyond concerns of income uh, and how that influences exposure. So for example, um, people of color, for example, this is the premise of environmental injustice is people of color are disproportionately burden, burdened with environmental pollution. Uh, and so environmental justice has typically been a field where people of color kind of lead the charge. White folks don't because it's not, it's not their cross to berry kind of thing, right? It's not that this, this isn't something that disproportionately impacts white folks. And so it's easy to pass that off. So when we talk about environmentalism, environmental justice is not traditionally part of environmentalism. It's like this other field that started not until the 1980s um, in the United States and really grew out and it's really big in the US partially because of our history of segregation, which allows us once you have segregation, you can put the pollution where all people of color are. And that has, I mean, there, there are significant ramifications about who bears the burden of pollution, who benefits from the industries that produce that pollution, because that's also disproportionate. 
now I'm thinking back to your question and if I answered it. <laughs> <laughs> you did. And, and I just, I, I kind of want to go further on that. And I also, I'd love Quill to jump in on this and as, you know, thoughts from, uh, you know, more conservative think tank side of things. But uh, I am interested in these kind of conversations about, you know, where things are placed. I know everyone thinks, you know, I think everybody on this conversation would think if someone murders someone, they should be put in prison. Well, don't jump to conclusions, Kelly. Yeah, don't jump um, to conclusions. But 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 nobody wants to prison in their backyard, mm-hmm. right? People will, hey, we're gonna build a new prison, not in my backyard, not at all. And then it ends up being those end up being normally in more rural areas where there aren't a lot of things, at least in in our state. So my my thought is, I have seen this happen with uh, pollution in particular. Uh, the Marathon Refinery here in Michigan was placed near uh, what is uh, south, known as Southwest Detroit, which is a high Hispanic population. We also call it Mexican town. Um, oop, the iPad just fell, sorry. Um, it's and, it's uh, famous for, for out-of-state listeners, it's famous for being uh, name-dropped in Don't Stop Believing. Oh, true story, true story. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, the, uh, sorry, Southwest Detroit has the highest concentration um, by population, I guess, uh, of asthma cases in the United States. Oh. Primarily because of that marathon refinery. And originally when they put it in, um, they moved a lot of people out within a particular radius and then they saw the pollution was high. So they moved even more people out and the, the place grew and then they moved even more people out and the asthma cases went uh, through the roof. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about there, uh, Moshkan? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. We have concentrated the pollution and that area is is like one of the most polluted areas of the state. It's not just the Marathon Oil Refinery. There's a host of pollution there. But yes, we concentrate it in low-income communities that are often news that have a high proportion of uh, people of color. Uh, so it's it this happens all across the country in the United States and then it's it's manifested differently excuse me, differently internationally, um, but still kind of a similar type of practice. And that, which maybe we'll talk about later, is I think more to do yeah. with like structural and, and we forces. Might, we, we might get a little ahead here, but Quill, I know something that's interesting to me about the ACC is, you know, one of the pillars you stand on is obviously capitalism and free market, you know, allowing you know, environmentalism, but also, you know, free market capitalism, uh, which is awesome. But we're also seeing right now uh, the free market capitalism, I guess, in some people's estimation, running wild. And then we see these kind of disparities happen. Like, hey, you know, the, that grab for money, I believe uh, they asked, um, what's his name? Uh, John D. Rockefeller, richest man in the world at one point. Uh, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more, right? And so we're seeing that grab for money create these kind of issues. At least that's the narrative that is out there. So given the fact that you are conservative, and believe in free market capitalism as part of the solution for environmental justice. Uh, how do you address kind of like what we were just talking about there, where these kind of things generally disproportionately affect um, marginalized groups of people? Yeah, absolutely, Calvin. And that's you know that's a that's a really important question. Um, I think we need more capitalism. And what you're describing is not capitalism; it's crony capitalism, and that's a perversion of capitalism. And so. Um, you know, in a, you know, in a democratic capitalist society, you, you have laws, you have recourse, um, you know, through a system of laws so that that community that it has a, 
um, you know, a polluting refinery in the area um, can have recourse. So in a, in a well-functioning society of laws and in a capitalist system, you, you, you should be able to address that. But here's the reason that I'm such a pro-capitalist. Um, there's this concept of the environmental Kuznets curve. And essentially that's economists speak for, you know, as people reach a particular level of economic prosperity, they are then able to think about and consider environmental outcomes. You know, an example of this is, you know, if I can't put food on the table for my kids, I'm not thinking about climate change, right? I, I have to, I have to be able to provide for my family even before I'm thinking about the, you know, the dirty lake just a couple of miles down, you know, from my house. And so, that's why I'm so pro-capitalist. Is that, you know, throughout history, capitalism has been the force that has created unprecedented economic prosperity throughout the world. Um, you know, in the since 1970, it's brought one billion people from absolute poverty up to a to a higher level. I think that's a pretty good success story. And I think that also when we're looking at these really big issues like climate change, such a complex issue, such a challenging issue, our only choice is to innovate. And we have to create these creative solutions. And so in a capitalist system, that means that, you know, somebody who's a graduate from the University of Michigan can go out and create a new solar panel and sell that and profit off that. And that's a good thing. I want more of that that, you know, somebody can go out and create an electric vehicle and do really well because people, because you and I care about the environment, can go out and buy that Tesla because, or that Tesla or some other electric car because we want that. And actually, that's one of the most encouraging stories that I'm seeing in the environmental movement right now is that as people my age, as young people are taking up this banner of caring for the environment and, and fighting against climate change, we live in a system where entrepreneurs, where innovators, where young people who come up with creative ideas can be rewarded for their ideas. And since there's such a big demand for sustainability in a broad sense, those ideas get rewarded. So that's why I think capitalism is so important. And I just want to add one more thing. I, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative. I'm, I'm, I'm from Seattle. But one of the things that I've really um, enjoyed in my job is I've gotten to speak to a lot of people who are, you know, for lack of a better word, are in Trump country, right? And so in January, I had the opportunity to go out to, to Iowa and speak to a group of uh, young people about climate change. And I, I'm telling you, this was, this was the most MAGA hats I've ever seen in a room before. Um, it was really something else, not really the room you'd expect to go in and have a warm welcome um, talking about climate change. Um, but there's a lot of young people there. And I spoke for 15 minutes talking about how um, you know, through an innovative approach, through, through something, not, not a punitive approach to climate change that's going to make it more expensive for them to fill up their cars, that's an issue of equity, but an innovative approach that's going to make it easier for us to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and prepare communities for change, that we're going to be able to lift up our country and have more economic opportunity, but also address this really important issue. And you want to know what the response was at the end? We're Christians. We're farmers. You know, we derive our sustenance from the land, of course, we care about the environment. Yeah, let me ask you, Quill. Um, so that's, you know, that's my kind of overview on capitalism yeah. and yeah. also other groups that often get left out of this conversation. Yeah, and we'll so, hit more on so, it later, but uh, Steve, go ahead. Yeah. So Quill, um, from, a, from that point of view that you, you just gave there, uh, if we're looking at, at, you know, more capitalism, and I'm not necessarily for or against, but just a, as a question, um, if we're looking at capitalism as being sort of the solution to the problem of the person trying to put food on the table. Under this, in this situation, who will be speaking for the person trying to put food on their table who doesn't have the, the wherewithal, the ability, or the time to worry about the environment? Like, who's going to speak on their behalf while they're still uh, trying to transition from $8 an hour to $12 an hour to $15 an hour to get themselves in that kind of position? 
who will speak for that? I mean, in a democratic society, they speak for their vote. There's incredible organizations um, all over the country that are addressing these sorts of issues and lifting people up and giving them opportunities to speak on that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though I come at this from a particular perspective, I'm so glad that there's this dearth of organizations from the Sunrise Movement to our organization, ACC, that are giving a voice to different groups who are trying to address these issues. So that, that takes me to the next question then um, for, for both of you. What do you, what do you think are the, the biggest obstacles uh, in passing substantive, uh, sub, sub, substantive, sorry, I hate that word, uh, environment, leg, uh, environment legislation? Is it, is it difficult to convince lawmakers of the utility of investing in a strategy that may not come to fruition until they've left office or better yet, like once they've left the earth? <laughs> we, we talk about like, ah, oh, you got to leave it for the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. Like, I'm dead. Like, I don't care if the meteor hits the planet, you know, when I'm dead at that point. It means nothing to me. Um, but that tends to be, hey, we're leaving the world for, for, our, for the next generation. So is it hard to, uh, to convince legislators of things that may not come to fruition while they're in office or maybe even while they're still alive? We'll throw that to Moshkan. Yeah, I think it's really difficult. I think... Uh... True conservation work uh, really requires long-term thinking. Uh, and it also requires like some level of an ecological mindset, which we in a lot of Western societies do very poorly because um, we think very linearly instead of more circular and kind of nature has a circular economy um, in many ways. Uh, and so I think you gotta think long-term you gotta look, think really long-term sometimes. Like climate change is one of those really long-term things. And it makes it really difficult when you have shorter time term limits or you have a term limit of four years or six years. And that person's like, wait, if I have to push this thing that's gonna like increase taxes or I'm gonna have this restrictive policy, that's not going over well with folks, but people like the outcome, right, of it. It's hard to convince them so what it means is you have to have a politician who's willing to risk not getting reelected. And most people don't want to do that. And I get why they don't, but it means that our environmental policies stall um, in a lot of ways because of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Good. I, I guess I would just, you know, and take this all with a grain of salt because I am the son, I grew up in Seattle. I'm the son of hippies who's now a conservative and I'm trying to turn the Republican party into the party of the environment. So if you want to throw all this out, that's fine, but I am an author. <laughs> I like it, Quill. Go on. (laughs) I'm excited about this. Here's my pitch. So I am an optimist and it's particularly, so I'm based here in DC and I have spent the last year here in DC basically telling the stories of young conservatives, of young people who are generally on the right of center to their legislators. And that's a really powerful thing because they saw these young progressive activists, and I'm talking, you know, primarily about Republicans now. Um, They'd seen young progressive activists talking about this issue for a while. They'd seen Al Gore, a very prominent former Democratic um, politician, talk about this. But now in my role, which I absolutely love and I have so much fun doing it, I'm telling the stories about young conservatives who care about climate change and the environment to their legislators. And often these, uh, these students, these young activists are folks who've interned in their offices. You know, they're knocking on doors for them, that sort of thing. And so it's a, it's a, it's a different strategy. It's a new strategy. And I've really seen it working. And here's Here's my evidence. So I, 
over the last this earlier this year, we we launched this platform called the American Climate Contract, and essentially it's it's our approach to climate change based on more of an innovation based approach. We've had some of the most powerful Republicans in the House of Representatives support this plan. And if you'd asked me a year ago, two years ago, this is a climate plan. If you'd asked me a year ago, two years ago, if this was possible, I would have said no way. But over the course of a year, we've gone from you know debates over is it real and all that to our lawmakers in Congress embracing um, a climate plan because of youth conservative activists. And so I think we have a long ways to go. Um, but one of the other ways that I do address this, you know, besides kind of tapping into that youth energy and saying, look where the future of the party wants to go, is also talking about these policies in terms of secondary and tertiary benefits. You know, what are the ways that, um, you know, investing in small modular reactors, which is this awesome, awesome technology, new nuclear technology, or investing in clean energy in their districts um, might help. And it's not, you can't just put it in terms of climate change. You say, look how many jobs it's going to create. There are over 3 million clean energy jobs in the United States. Why don't we get that to your district too? Um, everyone cares about clean air and clean water, and this is going to help us have cleaner air and cleaner water. That's how you pitch something like climate change, is not just paint this stark, dark picture of impending doom, but say, look, this is where young people want to go, and here are all the benefits of going this direction. And so that's, that's my experience, and that's what I've found to be honestly really successful. All right. Well, I mean... Doesn't matter what um, <clears throat> what job you work in. There seems to be, at least in in my experience and from the experience I've, I've heard from others, uh, is when you're dealing with older people who are used to a certain way of doing things, the new kid comes in. Hey, look, fresh fit, you know, fresh face Quill graduated from college a couple of years ago. He's coming in here and telling me all about the environment. And man, I've been in Congress for. I've got shirts older than Quill. What is he? What yeah, does he know? Sure, yeah, I got shirts older than this kid, and he's going to tell me all about this. Uh, and this is my uncle, uh, not my uncle. I'm sorry, um, my my wife's uncle. So I don't know what it, that makes him for me, but nothing. Uncle he's in nothing. law. He's nothing to me. But I remember sitting at his <laughs> dining wife's room uncle. table, and uh, I remember sitting at his dining room table, and he's a conservative guy, but he's like sixty, you know, sixty-five, almost seventy. He works on cars. Right. He's like, hey, you know, look, when I was when I was 20, they told me that the earth was going to freeze. We don't do something now. The earth's going to freeze. And then they told me, man, the earth is going to burn up if we don't do something in the next five years. And then they told me, hey, it's freezing and cooling and you don't know which one's going to get you. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering, as I feel like we have a good idea which way it's tipping. <laughs> yeah, but but <laughs> I guess my question is, hey, you, you, you said you've seen some some movement my question is hey youthful excitement we there, there's youthful excitement in uh the democratic party there's youthful excitement apparently uh in the uh in the conservative side of the aisle as well but are you actually seeing tangible legislative policy movement once you have those conversations because the republican party is not known at least narratively for wanting anything to do with this conversation. So my question is, are you in there and they're not in their head like, yeah, kid, I get it. And then nothing happens. Well, why don't I just give you an example? Cause that's- Yeah, you know, absolutely, please. That's, I mean, that's exactly why I asked the question. There we go. So this summer um, we helped pass probably the biggest conservation bill in 50 years. It was called the Great American Outdoors Act. Um, and this bill essentially provided funding um, <clears throat> and um, invest in our national parks and public lands across the United States. It was a bipartisan effort. 
Um, yeah. Something that they've been working on for several decades, got it done on a bipartisan basis. And I, you know, I, I bring this up all the time because people haven't heard about it. And so, you know, I don't want, and again, I, I told you guys, I'm an optimist. I might be a little nuts here, but I, every time I'm on, you know, I'm talking to folks, it's like, look, we had this huge success this summer. That was Republicans and Democrats coming together on the environment. That was a real success. Um, and that's something they got done. And so I think there's a lot more opportunities like that. And just to give you another example, we have a big energy innovation package coming up in the next couple of weeks that has been worked on by Democrats and Republicans. You're not going to hear about it on the news, but it would do it would make a substantive difference in terms of expanding clean energy in the United States. And so there's a when in July that we had. There's another one that could be teed up right before the election. Set all of the rhetoric aside. There's another opportunity. And so I've seen a series of wins, and I think there's more coming. See, Quill, I think the problem here is when it's bipartisan, you can't campaign on it. That's it. You nailed it. <laughs> and it's so, I mean, that makes so sense. If, and if you can't campaign on it, it's not going to get to the news. If it's not going to get to the news, you're not going to be, you know, the five of us sitting here talking. We're not going to be able to say, yes, this just came across. Quill has to come in here. And deliver the news to us because no one's no one's talking about it. Yeah, I'm like I'm googling it right now. Like yeah. I've not heard anything about this. Well, well, I guess my my question to you, and you say you're an optimist, and so I'm going to give you a chance to be optimistic and turn me into one. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pick a senator. I'm gonna pick a senator at random uh, from a region at random. Let's say Marco Rubio, and. Marco Rubio is un, is uh, is a self-identified Christian, and he is uh, under fifty, and he comes from a land that, if climate change continues the way it's going, is literally not going to exist in twenty thirty years. He he took eight hundred thousand dollars. A couple of elections ago from oil and gas, and he wants nothing to do with legislation that uh, substantively limits uh, greenhouse emissions. So if we can't get Marco Rubio, how are we going to get Chuck Grassley? You're, you're using the wrong measure. Um, and that's something that's, that's, that's a lot, that has a lot to do with the narrative um, that we often hear, the, the, the most prominent narrative on climate change. In terms of sources of energy, um, in terms of the tools that we use to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, I have my personal favorites, but in the broader scheme of things, whether it means a bunch of wind turbines or it means all nuclear, it's the same to me. What I care about is reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so the narrative that, you, that a lot of people have been told is that we're going to measure success by how many uh, oil and gas executives we can lock up. It doesn't, you know, that I don't think that that actually has a substantive that, that makes a real difference in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and actually, you know, if we can use carbon capture technology to sequester those emissions, that's great. So I want to move away from that narrative of, you know, somebody took money from oil and gas and they're anti-climate. I think that that's probably, that's not a particularly productive way to look at it. Is, can Marco Rubio do a hell of a lot more in terms of addressing the issue of climate change? Absolutely. And there's a lot of legislators in Florida who are doing that and are looking at how can we strengthen mangrove forests to help adapt and sequester uh, carbon on the coast. And others are looking at water quality and all sorts of different issues down there. Long way to go. But I think as long as we're in this mindset of, you know, somebody's taking money from oil and gas, they're against the climate. I, I, I don't think that that's particularly productive. But I do want to actually bring it a little bit more locally for you guys. In Michigan, there's a guy named Peter Meyer who's running for Congress. 
young Republican, veteran, strong conservative, he's actually made climate change one of his main issues that he's talking about. And he's someone um, that we've had a lot of good conversations about. And I think he really represents the future of the Republican Party and the future of effective um, conservation and the effective climate movement. Moshkan, your uh, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think I have a little bit more, maybe uh, my perspective is a little bit different. I think the money in politics matters and the fossil fuel industry makes a ton of money. And as you brought up, Kent, <laughs> donates a lot, donates a lot of it to politicians. And uh, I can't write that off um, because, you know, that correlation to a lack of addressing climate change matters. And while I think it's great that some politicians, and, and I do think, you know, I, the, the divide between like Republican and Democrat and like supporting policies, it's blurrier than we often make it out to be. Um, and there's overlap. Um, I'm a Christian as well, right? And, and I, so I have them come with Marco Rubio. That only should bolster his environmentalism and his address concerns for addressing climate change. It's not though, right? And so there's something else at play that's different between me and Marco Rubio. Um, there's a lot of things that are probably different between us and I don't live in Florida um, and I don't live in a state that's as threatened. Um, so uh, the difficulty or one of the things that I, I have a hard time with is I'm glad that some politicians are talking about carbon sequestration and trying to like capture carbon so that way you're, you're kind of reducing the chance of climate change getting worse. That's great. But I don't think that's the best method. That's the way like, we're gonna keep polluting, but we're gonna try and capture some of that pollution as our fix. And I don't, as an environmental health, I teach environmental health. I'm like, okay, so you're gonna capture the carbon. What about all that other stuff that's bad for all of our health, right? That's still a problem. Mining for oil and gas is also a health problem and causes extreme environmental degradation. So you need to also talk about these environmental issues from like the cradle to the grave idea. And when we just talk about climate change, like that's only like one component of it. And I don't wanna focus on just like adaptation techniques to climate change. Like how do we address the tail end of it? And I think politicians get away with that piece of talking about like, all right, we're gonna address this part of the problem, but not the actual upstream causes of the problem. And it makes it seem like they're, they're, they're taking action and they are. And I don't wanna discount that because, hey, I'll take what I can get at least, but it also isn't, it isn't enough, frankly. Uh, Pushkin, let, uh, let's, let's go with your thread that you kind of started there. Um, what are the lesser known side effects of poor air and water quality that we usually don't discuss in popular conversation? I think it's, it's easy when we talk about uh, water in Flint, um, that's kind of a, a popular conversation mm -hmm. over the last several years, but what are, what, what are we not talking about that we should be talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the time when people talk about, like this is, this is part of my criticism of how people conceptualize environmentalism. And I clearly come from this from a perspective of like, I teach in public health. I relate this to people. Um, and I always feel a little bit bad because like at heart, I'm like, I care about the animals and like the natural world outside of human beings too. But I can recognize messaging matters and people are selfish and we care about ourselves more. We so, vote uh, koala bears don't, so. You know, koala bears are adorable, but you're <laughs> right, you're right. So that there's, there's, you know, you gotta know your audiences, right? Uh, so 
for me, why I got into this, the fields that I'm in and I'm kind of the environmental science field and environmental health and public health is because of how it impacts people. And so when people talk about air pollution and water pollution, they're usually again thinking about environmental quality for like frogs. So people, like sometimes you people like, oh, well, what about the impacts this has on like frogs? I've heard about frogs with multiple legs. You're like, okay, you think that doesn't potentially impact humans? <laughs> Maybe it does, right? At some point, there there might be ramifications for human health as well. It might just the effects might be so subtle. And oh, Quill may be too young to remember this reference. Uh, no, <laughs> but there's a famous Simpsons episode with the three-eyed fish. Anybody in, remember that? That was an environmental episode. But anyway, I'm sorry. Just brought <laughs> yeah. that up for me. I, like, I mean, oh. that's what people think of. Is they're like, well, those fish. You're like, well, what about the humans who also might be drinking some of that water too? Uh, so there are health impacts to that, um, and there are ecological impacts, and there, there's something people refer to as like ecosystem services. So with increased pollution, you reduce also ecosystem services, which is like the kind of the economic benefits. It's a way to put numbers on things, um, so that way we can get everybody else to realize it matters. <laughs> and so uh, those are also reduced. But I mean, the things I think about as a public health person is like air pollution. Um, particular particulate matter, for instance, um, increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, um, as well as asthma and respiratory diseases, of course. Uh, and so, and then there are a number of other potential implications on cognition, mental health, um, and there have there's been research to show associations with mental health, suicide, um, IQ, cognition, and things like that. So, all of that matters. And what gets difficult is how you, you can't prove necessarily causation very well. Like if you, if you break it down to like the scientific research model, uh, it's really difficult to, to really show this caused this because it's just, these things are really messy and complicated. So people don't link them very often. Like is my asthma because my father smoked in my house or is it because I lived in an area in Southwest Detroit where that's where I grew up also and, and, and I was exposed to all this air pollution. Maybe if you lived and you just lived with your father who smoked, you wouldn't have had asthma. Maybe with just one of those, you wouldn't have had asthma. But both of them together, you do. Or maybe just one of them. Maybe just the pollution would have caused you to have asthma, right? I don't know those answers. Uh, and it makes it really complicated um, to be able to tease out so people don't go there. But those implications matter. It's, it's this idea of externalities. I'm, I'm really big about talking about externalities because we don't do it. And this is where I think capitalism falls short, generally. Uh, because a typical, I should say, often how it is expressed, falls short, is because the externalities are, you know, you, you pay a cost for like a phone. Does the cost of the phone that you're paying account for the environmental degradation from the resources that were mined for the phone? Does it also pay for the degradation of the health of the workers who, who put that phone together and exposed hazardous chemicals in the process? Does it pay for the environmental degradation for the transportation of that phone to you and electricity that it uses, right? So it's, what are the actual impacts mm. of like the footprint of that thing? We don't account for it. Well, are you referring to like uh, resources pulled out of, let's say the Congo, which then result, which then causes um, uh, conflicts, you know, for resources. That could be in, it. In those sorts of, is that kind of what you're talking is about? Is that, I'm thinking of like the fact that you have polluted water. I mean, I work with gold miners, small scale gold miners uh, and small scale gold mining, very typical. Okay. I should say mining generally extractive industries generally 
cause pretty significant environmental damage, right? You can't really do mining without environmental damage of some type. So any type of resource extraction is going to have some ecological degradation. And the ecological degradation usually means polluted waterways that people may depend upon. So now you don't have clean water anymore. So now you might have to figure out a way to bring water in to that community. And you have respiratory issues that might come from the pollution from that industry of mining, right? So mm. all of that happens and like nobody talks about it. It's just like, I just got this phone and I paid X amount of dollars for it. <laughs> And your costs are so cheap compared to what other people are bearing in the like decrements to their health and their environment. So let, That's let me my ask, let me let me ask a question. You know, um, I've I've got a number of rabbit trail questions that I want to ask here. I want to ask one more question, then we'll take a five minute break, um, just so people can refuel and use the restroom and, and whatnot. But um, there are there are companies that uh, have said, we're, we're, we are taking a stand. Uh, sometimes it's through pressure. Hey, we found out that you got people making these things in sweatshops. Hey, we're going we're gonna to change our tune. But you do have uh, companies that are trying to say, hey, look, we're going to uh, try to eliminate our carbon footprint. We're trying to make things cheaper. We're trying to not destroy the environment uh, where we are uh, getting the materials from. Uh, one company that, I, that, I'll, that I'll bring up is a company like Apple. They've been called to the mat for, hey, these phones are being made in these sweatshops and people aren't allowed to even go to the bathroom. They're not allowed to go to sleep. They're working these god-awful hours. And um, I can't remember, uh, Tim Cook, who's now the, uh, the CEO of the company, uh, took that to, to heart, corporately speaking, and, and they, they made a change. My question is like, okay, so last week I paid $1,000, $1,000 outright. For my daughter's phone. I don't know how much that thing is actually worth. $1,000. $1,000, Calvin. Well, I mean, it's yes, I get that. But is built into the cost of a device that I would pay $150 for, generally speaking, um, is the cost of $1,000, Moshkan, I mean, you were just saying, hey, these things aren't taken into consideration. I'm going, this phone's $1,000. It's not worth a thousand dollars. I'm paying a thousand. It's not worth a thousand. So to that end, is that other amount of money just pure profit for the company, or are they taking into consideration some of the things that you say that they're not? Like, hey, mining. There's, there's a problem. There. Hey, look, we're going to charge you an extra two hundred and fifty dollars for this phone, so that we can. I don't know if they're doing this, but so that we can put money back into the places where we're pulling the resources from originally. I mean, I, I, yeah. Is is that have you heard of anything like that happening? Either of you? I don't, I don't know. That would seem like if a company took that stance, that would bear the extra cost, right? That would, that would explain extra cost sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know enough to know Apple's supply chain right. practices. I just threw them out, there. Right? I, I threw them out but, there as an example. Right. But you're right. Like I was thinking of the iPhone too, like a thousand dollars for a phone. You're clearly, the cost of that phone materials wise is not a thousand dollars, right? Somebody's making profit. And the question is, is where does, where are those, who's getting the profit and what proportions? Um, so I'd ask that question. But the other piece is that while I think it's likely that Apple is, and I, again, I haven't looked into this or some company has uh, maybe cleaned things up and ensured, okay, workers get a proper break, they get respirators or, or maybe, I don't know, they get paid a certain wage. But 
are they, let's say workers do a certain thing that increases their risk of this health problem, whatever that health problem may be, whether it's a respiratory issue or back issues from a certain ergonomic position they hold. Do the cost of the phone, like, do they in some way pay for the health insurance those workers might have or health problems those workers may have 30 years down the line? Probably not, right? Who's going to pay for it? Either if they have universal health care, which um, most countries do. So probably there's, there's, there's some universal health care program um, in, in place, or they just have decreased quality of life or uh, poor health, like die early, right? So they're bearing the burden. These are usually poor people and people of color. Right. So that's another area of where you have kind of a disproportionate burden of those impacts. Well, your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, you, you paid a thousand dollars for a phone because that phone was worth a thousand dollars to you. And I, I mean, that's, that's kind of, and no, it wasn't, it was well, not that, worth it. <laughs> well, My daughter yeah. wanted it. That's why I paid a thousand dollars for it. Then it was worth it to you, Calvin. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the thing because, because yeah. you wanted it, you wanted it enough to pay a thousand dollars. And that's, you know, that's, that's the system, right? I mean, that's, that's how our system works, right? And that is the value that we ascribe to a product is whatever we pay for it, right? There are other options out there to buy a phone. Um, I, I do want to touch a little bit on the on the mining point because that's something that's really interesting to me. Um, and you know, one of the things that's happening is, you know, for a lot of extractive industries, we're offshoring that, and that means that you know the, the components that go into that phone um, are often extracted in other countries where there are abysmal environmental standards. And as, as you said, abysmal worker rights as well. And so that's one of the reasons that it's really important that, you know, we are, you know, there are massive, um, you know, these rare earth minerals that go into these different products. A lot of those we can mine in the United States with much higher environmental standards, um, with much higher worker standards. And that's something we should be doing. And I, I also want to say is, you know, extraction has been going on, you know, for thousands and thousands of years, and there is a sustainable way to do that. And it's important because it allows, you know, people to be lifted up to a level where they are able to be comfortable and, and, and you know, have a good life. And so, you know, I think that there's a, and that's why I always prefer, prefer conservation to preservation, right? You know, thinking about humans and nature as separate, I think is kind of a, a fallacy. You know, we are part of nature and there is a healthy, sustainable way we can interact with nature. And extraction is part of that. And so that's a little bit of a digression there, but I, I think that that's an important point is that, you know, we can extract the resources that we need um, in a sustainable way. Um, and I'm really encouraged to see all the companies that, do, was, that are doing this. And actually Microsoft, my, my, one of my hometown companies has taken really, really ambitious targets in terms of um, carbon emissions. They're actually planning to go carbon negative, which is amazing. Um, and that's the cool thing about sequestering carbon is you're literally reversing climate change. So that's super cool. Um, but the, the, the great thing about companies doing this is that they have know-how, they have capital, and they have the incentive to do this because they have all these experts who know all about their supply chains. They have tons of money because they're, you know, charging $1,000 for an iPhone. Um, and they want to be companies in 100 years. And so what they have to do is continue, continue to deliver the products, but also the values that consumers want. And that's, what's, that's the coolest thing to me. And I think that that's actually the most exciting thing in conservation, in the environmental movement, is as my generation, as Gen Zers and millennials are going out and picking where they want to work and what kind of products they want to buy, sustainability is part of that. And companies know that. And I'll give you a concrete example. BP, big oil company, 
Equinor, it's another European oil company. They just announced a partnership to create an offshore wind farm off of New England. These are oil companies, but because they know what the future looks like and they want to be companies in a hundred years, they're choosing to be energy companies. Oil companies becoming energy companies. That's a good thing. That's a win for the environment. Um, that means we're moving in the right direction against climate change and that's capitalism working. All right. So I want, I want, I want to take a break there. We're going to come right back to that though. Cause okay. there's, 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 I know you, you will, we'll pick right back up there. Let's take five minutes. Okay. And Moshkan, you can come back with a, with a response. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. No problem. Be back in five. And we are back from break. Uh, we, we left off with, with some commentary from Quill and Moshkan. I, I stopped you cause we needed to take a five minute break. Uh, what, what did you what did you want to say in response? I think I had two two thoughts I wanted to share, and I think there is a very practical like we we need. I'm not opposed to companies doing environmentally friendly things. I'm all in favor of that, and I think we need that. And that frankly, I'm kind of a like do all of the things <laughs> that we can do because we need it all to happen. Uh, that being said, I think there are a couple of concerns I typically have. Um, one is that we do, you know, when we think about mining and extractive industries, we have historically done this for a long time and there's a little bit of it that we have to, right? Like in some ways, like even farming is extractive, right? We gotta eat. So uh, there's an element of like, we have to do these things, but historically we've done a lot of it wrong uh, so like miners of mercury only lived like a few years after they started mining. They died of mercury poisoning. Uh, and those would be largely... They had an expendable, uh, expendable workforce. That's right. Yeah, it was prison populations, right? Yep. <laughs> and so like, yeah, we've done this at the expense of people we have deemed less worthy in some fashion. So and we, we're doing the same basic thing, but we're killing them slower. And I don't know if it's kinder or harsher ways. Um, however you want to perceive that. So it's just different um, how these things manifest. Uh, but then the other piece is, like, I think, think a lot of companies are, are cleaning up their act. They are taking much stronger environmental stances and I, it's wonderful. But I also see and hear about companies that like they tell you, like they release this, that this publicly release of some like environmental initiative they're doing. And then you hear about this other thing they're doing that's basically in contradiction to it. And it's like, okay, what's the real story here? And what you hear is it's this idea of greenwashing of, of these companies that will say like, hey, I'm doing all these environmentally friendly things. Uh, but then they're doing other things that are actually worse for the environment, but their public facing kind of message is that they're really progressive on it. We dumped nuclear waste into the river, but we got rid of straws from our cafeteria. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. It's like, it's, that's no longer a problem. And, and again, like it gets really tricky. Like, how do you weigh these things? It's not, there's no like this outweighs this, like it's not an even balance. Uh, but I, I do think it's important to also be like, I'm wary, frankly, of companies when they tell me about their environmental initiatives, because it's not that I don't trust them per se, but it's the, I'm glad you're doing that, but has your overall initiative around environmental policies shifted or did you just like tell us about some so, so easy that, that, things then that that brings up the the question that i want to ask a little bit off script but uh, as we get into talking more about policy and how we enact that 
Um, what is either party really doing around these issues at all, besides removing straws from from the you know the cafeteria of you know the you know Congress? I, I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is you have the the conservative side of the aisle that has historically, or at least in in the media, been presented as people who do not care about the environment. Right. And then on the liberal side, like, hey, we, we care about the environment. We're putting legislation out there, but then we hear about the companies adapting to it and it really not making a difference whatsoever. Right. We're, we're putting a green bandaid on it. We're th- this, this building has been built with these materials. And so they're green. Um, we, we did a little cleanup. We cleaned up the duck with, with our Dawn. Yeah, sure. This other company, we, you know, give money to actually did the oil spill. So that's why we got to use the Don to, kill, to clean the duck. But what are the, what are either side of the aisle actually doing legislatively that is making any actual change to these issues that you care about? Like, like the, the bill quill that you, you talked about that passed, like the Voting Rights Act of 19, what, 63 has been gutted. It's great. <laughs> we gave people all these different rights. But it's been gutted at this point. So my question is, hey, you've got this bill, bipartisan bill that's been passed. Is it going to do anything? And, and Moshkan, like, we've got the liberal side of the aisle that says they're for the environment. But are they doing anything of real effective change that will be long term, especially when regimes change? Hey, look, Trump comes in, scales back things with the EPA. Hey, another guy comes in, you know, maybe Biden comes in, in in November or maybe Trump continues. But if Biden comes in, it's going to, you know, things will change with the EPA and regulations will be back. What 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 is either side actually doing other than appeasing their, their constituency? I mean, yeah. I think, oh. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Morshan, please. I mean, I'll just quickly say that I think, um, you know, like it's interesting because I don't identify as, a Republican or a Democrat. Um, I'm an independent. Um, I definitely lean more on the progressive side of things. Um, but the Democrats aren't not, they aren't leading. I mean, it's the like, we talk about the Democrats in relation to Republicans. So it's like, you know, Republicans, as you mentioned, Calvin, are not known for their super progressive environmental stances. Um, and Democrats are, right? By default, they are, right? merely because they are put in perspective of the Republicans. Um, But I don't think they are the beacons of, um, I mean, the traditional uh, democratic positions necessarily. I I am often critical of kind of all sides, (laughs) uh, or the two sides rather, um, and and their approach to this. So I don't think there is um, either one, neither one is perfect, I should say. Uh, And I think it's fair to, to critique both of them um, but yet, I hope that we can work on both sides and, and any other third parties too. But go ahead, Quill. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Mushkan, I want to say, I, I think some of the skepticism you have around companies and their environmental efforts, I actually have about the government and sort of progressive environmentalism. So I, I grew up in Seattle in the home of plastic straw bands and, you know, St. Jay Inslee. And, um, you know, the fact is, is that 90% of plastic in the ocean comes from seven rivers that are not in North America, right? And like, that's, you know, it, it's, it's stuff to make you feel good. And, you know, in Washington state, we have a progressive governor who banned fracking in a state where there is none, you know, like, it makes people feel good. And that's, but it doesn't actually make a difference in terms of these environmental issues. 
Um, something, something I got to say on the Republicans, though. Hey, we had Teddy Roosevelt. He founded the National Park System. Richard Nixon created the EPA. George H.W. Bush um, advanced the Clean Air Act. And so there, there's, there's a history that we're trying to get back to there. Um, but in terms of the opportunities, um, I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement on both sides. But I think one of the issues, and this is probably one of the reasons that people are so disillusioned right now, is these environmental wins, which are happening, are not getting broadcast because it's much easier to talk about, you know, to, to play the clip of President Trump saying windmills cause cancer and for President Trump to make fun of Joe Biden and say that he wants to put everybody out of a job who's in the oil and gas industry, right? Like that's just better fodder. Um, you know, just since I'm, I'm working here in DC, just to mention some of the opportunities that I see coming up, um, there are bills right now on battery storage. And why is battery storage important? Because renewables are intermittent sources of energy. And in order to scale renewables and so more people can use them, we need to be able to store that energy. So investing in research into battery storage, it's not a super sexy, super cool thing, but it's really important to expanding clean energy and renewable energy. Um, and there's all sorts of things going on like that. And there's lots of you know, bipartisan legislation. Like I mentioned before, there's this huge energy innovation bill um, that addresses things like critical minerals, battery storage, um, you know, investing in um, advanced nuclear that's literally on the table right now before the election. But of course, it's 2020, November's coming up. And so it's much easier to, to focus on the, the climate denial versus Green New Deal debate than actually the, the real policy that Democrats and Republicans are working together on and hashing out. Well, one more question, then uh, we'll, let, uh, we'll let Kent ask the next one. Um, generally, with the show, we talk about a lot of uh, obviously debatable issues. Um, lots of hot button issues. Um, when it comes to the background that uh, Kent, Steve and I come from, you know, general evangelical Christian background was where we all kind of have come from. And we've all met lots of people who are like single issue voters. Abortion's my issue. That tends to be it. Uh, when it comes to, to, to the two of you, uh, let's say, uh, Quill, that uh, the Republican Party uh, was like, hey, look, we just we're all out. We're all we're a thousand percent out on on environmental issues. Just not not going to do it. Not going to do it. And um, the the other side of the aisle was like, hey, Quill, we're all about environmental over environmentalism over here. Is it a single issue big enough for you to to jump ship? And then most gone. Same thing. One of the Republicans were like, hey, look, we're all about. Uh, I mean, we talked to Quill. He convinced us we're all about uh, that. We're, we're, we're about that life now. Um, and the Democrats were like, hey, look, we're just kind of environmentalist in name only. Uh, is, is it a big enough issue for you to, to sway your vote one way or the other? Or are there a bunch of other issues that you're like, hey, look, even if they said screw the environment, there's these other things over here that I just can't get away from and I'll vote that way. You know, for me, I would say that... Um... I'm, you know, I, I think I generally more identify as a conservative in terms of the principles that inform the way I look at politics and the way I look at the world. Um, but I'm not super attached to party labels right now because neither party is offering a whole lot for me, frankly. Um, and so if Democrats, you know, I, I, if Democrats offered a really smart, innovative climate platform, that might be pretty interesting to me. And honestly, we work with, we work with many of them and have a lot of folks that we agree with. But I, I'd say, I'm not a single issue voter. And I think that that's one of the strategic mistakes of the climate movement is assuming that everybody is. It's an incredibly important issue. Obviously it's my life. The environment is my life work, but I'm not a single issue voter. And I try to look at it from the perspective of understanding that 
people need to put food on the table, people need healthcare, and there's a lot of other things to consider as well. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm also not a single issue voter. And uh, I, I look at the kind of holistic platforms and policies. And uh, for me, I'm looking at kind of like the whole the whole thing. And the environment is definitely a really important part for me, right? And so it's going to be a big part of how we evaluate candidates or a platform, a political platform. Uh, but if you have a stellar environmental plan, but um, there are other aspects around public health, for instance, that are severely lacking, I, you know, I'm thinking of holistically, how do I care for people? Um, and the planet. And if there's, you know, if you fail in, in that aspect, then I have to, you know, I can't just say, but you have the climate change thing or you have the environment figured out. So you got, I think, you know, Quill's right. I think any party that assuming that everyone is a single issue voter, voter is, is incorrect. I know that some people are, um, but I, I hope that that's starting to shift. I think, um, I think people who are oppositional toward making um, uh, in, to, toward affecting environmental legislation usually cite uh, high costs uh, as as the reason uh, as as their primary reason for why a plan uh, like the Green New Deal would is unrealistic. Um, are the upfront costs uh, with climate legislation? associated with the are the upfront costs recuperated and if so uh, how, how do you do that i i'm not uh someone who's actually done a cost benefit analysis on this so i can't give you official numbers but uh i do think that feel, you, feel, know, that, if you can't give us official numbers uh, make some up and defend, a, defend them as plan. well as you can. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm going to make up some, uh, I'm actually not going to make up numbers. I'll just okay. tell you the general gist of, of kind of my perspective on this, which is like, who's paying the costs and when, right? Those are the two questions I had to ask because yeah, yeah, we're talking about like, oh, upfront costs are really high. So, you know, how are we going to pay for it? What are we going to do? It's really, you, you're correct, 100% correct. Those numbers are high and it feels impossible. However, if you delay 30 years, are those costs going to get lower? <laughs> you, know? you know, there is there is a line from and I don't remember exactly what they were talking about, but there is a line uh, from the from an, an old episode of The Office, which I'm reminded of right now. And that is uh, the line is that is a problem for future Dwight. Yes. Um, so when that's we're talking about 30 years in the future, I'm, that's that's not me. That's a different right. person who has to deal with that. I mean, I hope in 30 years I'm still alive. Yep. Uh, so I'll hopefully still be dealing with ramifications of my lack of choice now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's one of those things where 30 or let's say 80 years where I'm very unlikely to still be alive. Uh, who knows with science and whatever yeah. else. Yeah. But somebody's going to pay that cost. And the longer we wait, the more expensive it gets. I mean, like to use a like health example if I have diabetes and so I get diabetes and I'm like, oh, I don't have money to, to go to the doctor and get it treated or, or to, to manage it. I put that off. One, the ramifications for my health are way more severe. I might lose a limb. 
Um, also, the cost to manage that, because I may have to have a limb amputated or, right, that's going to cost a lot more money. And the same thing exists with a lot of these environmental things. We put them off because we can. And sometimes we're like, I just can't handle that right now. And the financial burden of it is too much. And I get, I get why we do that. But we also acknowledge that that, that is a very narrow scope. And, and right, if you look at it from the long term, everybody can recognize like, yeah, treat diabetes early. That's the smart thing to do. And it's the same thing here. It's it really about me- the argument. It seems to me in Wisconsin, someone realized that it was cheaper to build a campaign saying you don't have diabetes than to treat the diabetes. I don't want to scare anybody. I don't want to scare. We don't want to scare people. We don't want to scare people. Uh, Quill, your thoughts. That was topical. Anybody. That's a topical joke. Go on, Quill. All right. You know, I, I think the the number that I know about the Green New Deal is $93 trillion. And I think, you know, I don't want to cut off my arm because I have diabetes. Um and that's, you know, that's kind of the way I look at it. I mean, the other thing, I don't think I'll ever see a dime of, of social security. Um, I pay taxes. I, I don't think I'm ever going to see a dime of social security. The debt is another ticking time bomb that perhaps gets, well, it does get far less co- coverage than, um, than climate change does. 2012 convention, baby. I remember the clock. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It hasn't, been a, it hasn't been a problem since then. Yeah. Yeah. No longer. Republicans we, don't have, we don't worry about it anymore. About that one. Oh, my goodness. Um, but... So, so I, and I, I think that, and this does not resonate with my generation, I recognize that, but like, you know, as a, as a taxpayer, as a, you know, as, as, as a person who's looking at the debt and that sort of thing, that's something that really concerns me. But I think the way that we can pitch this and the way that I look at it is every dollar of my money, money, your money, all of our money here is spent, you know, that's our money that the government is spending, um, should have the best return on investment possible in terms of addressing climate change, right? Um, so... And how do we measure that in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and uh, helping communities adjust for change? So each one of our dollars, not the government, our dollars that get spent should do as much as possible to achieve that. And so I think that there's sort of like a weird reverse thing where we're saying, you know, your seriousness, the seriousness of your approach to climate change is measured by how many dollars you're spending rather than how far is each one of those dollars going. And so that's the perspective that I choose to, to look at it from. And I think that you know, there's a lot of ways to break that down. And, you know, there's all sorts of different theories on, do you spend more of that on climate mitigation or adaptation or on clean energy or on infrastructure? And that's a, you know, whole longer conversation. But I think that, you know, the important thing here is that what money gets spent wisely, that we focus on things that have secondary um, other benefits in terms of jobs, in terms of health, and, you know, all sorts of other different things. Um, But ultimately, I think the most important thing is that we need to make it more profitable to be sustainable. And how do we do that in a capitalist system? We go buy the products that are. And so I think that's where you see the, the, the table really shift is not, you know, by the government spending $10 trillion or $20 trillion. I think we as consumers in our democratic capitalist society spend more of our money on companies that are, are doing environmentally sustainably, sustainable things. I think that's where you really see things shift in a major okay, way. Okay, so, so and, and I, I hear you, Quill. I guess the question that comes out of that for me is what happens when... Uh, thinking businesses, thinking long-term, something shifts and something is no longer profitable. COVID-19 hit, right? And this is the first time we're actually mentioning COVID in this entire episode, which is kind of fascinating to me. Um, but COVID-19 hit and all of a sudden businesses that were profitable with just a normal business plan, hey, we're a bowling alley. People come in and bowl. This is super profitable. 
every Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, right? Whatever. And league nights. And now your bowling alley is closed. Or we're a bar. We sell alcohol. Now your bar is closed. We're a gym. Everybody's going to have to work out. Now we're closed. I don't know if it happened everywhere, but it did here. So all of a sudden, something is no longer profitable. Let's talk, take that to the environmental conversation. Hey, uh, 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 paper straws is profitable. It, it's good. Whatever. And then all of a sudden, that's not profitable. It's much cheaper for the bottom line of that company. And a company is beholden to their shareholders, generally speaking. They're publicly traded, right? Uh, what happens when environmentalism is not profitable for the company? You know, I, I guess, you know, that's kind of in the hypothetical realm. I give you a real world example. Coal, less and less profitable. Why is that? Renewables got cheaper. People are hearing all about the deleterious effects of coal um, and the, the effects that it has on communities um, and the folks who work in that industry. It's less and less profitable. It's not being phased out because the, because the government said so. It's because it's not profitable. Um, and there's all sorts of examples of things becoming more profitable, um, you know, in terms of all the different innovative technologies that we have in our lives that are beneficial. And, you know, the a, a democratic, that's the beauty of a democratic system is politically, it's a reflection of who we are as a people. And in a capitalist system, our economic, our economy is a reflection is of what we want as a people as well. And, you know, there, obviously there's things that we want to improve upon and there's exceptions to that. But I think that's generally what we'll see is as there is a greater awareness um, of the environment and the challenges that we face. Um, and as we have more conversations like this and, you know, people hear about all sorts of important environmental issues, that's reflected and it, you know, impacts their demand. Quill, let me ask you a question as a, um, have you found um, when you are talking to fellow Republicans and trying to uh, convince uh, people in the Republican Party to take up some of these conservationist uh, bills that when they campaign on uh, the other side of the aisle is destroying coal jobs, and then you come in and say uh, it's the market that's killing coal and not the other side of the aisle, do you find it hard to work with them in that capacity because they're making they're raising money to campaign against their opponent based on the fact their opponent has by nature of the D next to their name destroyed coal. But really what you're saying and what we all know is true is the market is kind of making coal less necessary. So how is it that you kind of talk to them uh, and how is and are they, are they, are, do they listen to you when you try to make some of these arguments? Sure. I mean, I, I think that that's a, that's a very regional question too, right? Like that's something that very much depends on where somebody is from. Um, you know, so, so I, I guess I, you know, I, I would say that um, that is a difficult conversation for folks who come from coal country, right? Like um, if you came to Seattle and told me that pumpkin spice lattes are bad for the environment and that um, Starbucks need, is, is ruining the environment, that'd be a pretty tough conversation to, to, to have as someone from Seattle. Um, and that likewise, it is- Got a lot of basic people in Seattle, huh? Very pumpkin spice and, latte. And elsewhere. <laughs> I know, right? They're all over Michigan right now, man. Michigan feels attacked. <laughs> I know. <laughs> hey, I actually don't like pumpkin spice. Uh, pumpkin spice only belongs in pumpkin pie. I, I, I'm saying it. I'm saying it. Go, right. go ahead. I'm sorry, Quill. I'm sorry. We got no, jokes. No, it's all it's all good. Um, but you know, just to, to, to make the point that you know there are all sorts of 
difficult. That, that's a very difficult thing to. And I think the reason that Democrats have lost on this, and the, way, the reason that President Trump won on this, is that and if you go into a community and say, you know, tell them that the way that you provide for your family is uh, destroying the environment and bad for your family, that's going to be a pretty difficult conversation to have. And so, you know, I can't speak for the Republican Party or you know describe all the conversations I have, but I don't think it's the government's job to go in and, and put coal miners out of business. And I don't think that it's the government job, government's job to take my money and then spend it on propping up on a, a business that's no longer profitable. And, and that's just kind of how I come at it. And I, I think that, you know, that perspective or that approach is probably the best way to go environmentally as well. Uh, and it's Joe hey, Manchin too, it's a, not just the Democrats. We do that on, yeah. a, on a large scale all the time. We have companies that are profitable in cycles and then not profitable in cycles the auto we're in we're in detroit the auto industry we've we've had bailouts for the auto industry which means the auto industry not profitable at a certain point but it props up part of the american economy the mortgage industry which is something that i I work in the mortgage industry it props up the american economy and there are times where it was uh the bubble burst that that housing bubble burst in what 2008 to 2012 right we went into a recession because of that um but you know, we didn't get, well, people are going to buy houses. They need houses, right? So that, that industry is integral. So I, my, my question on the, hey, you know, profitable, why are we propping up these businesses that aren't profitable? That's what the government does all the time, at least on a large scale. It's like, hey, the, this company is not profitable, but we need it because this is a resource that people are always going to, always going to need. Well, right? so how do you, how, there's tons of subsidies that exist. So that's the government propping up various industries. Yeah. So, so how do you, how do you, how do you make that on, I guess on your side of the aisle, how do you make those decisions as to, yeah, well, we should prop this group up or we shouldn't prop this and we shouldn't prop this other group up over here. And then this is, this is off topic. I, I do want uh, Steve or Kent to get to the next question, but I just, you, you brought it up Quill and it's, it's, it's an interesting talking point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's more of my general political perspective than something that I can apply to each and every situation, right? And working in, you know, working on legislation and trying to um, move us in a direction of sustainability, it's an imperfect process. And it's not something that I can always easily translate that perspective to. I, but I think that, you know, I'll I'll just give you an example of this. Um, You know, wind and solar are heavily subsidized right now. Um, and I don't think that they should be because they are financially solvent and continuing to grow at rapid paces because of market demand. So I don't agree with oil subsidies. I don't agree with wind and solar subsidies. Um, is that something that I will spend all of my time and all of our organization will spend all of our time going after? No, but that's generally my perspective and generally our perspective. How do you feel about ethanol? (laughs) I can guess, but I mean, I, well, okay. Can I, can I just jump in with yeah. a couple of thoughts? Um, yeah. One is I wanted to add with coal mining, part of the decline of coal mining jobs is also increased mechanization. And so the messaging around it is also like, it's the environmentalists. It's not necessarily just the environmentalists. This was going to happen anyway, right? There were going to be less coal mining jobs. And the decline has happened for decades, even beyond just environmental policies and regulations. So, right, there, there's also like, there's a lot of misinformation about what's happening. The, um, the number that I heard in the, in the 2016 election when uh, the now president was running and talked about hundreds of thousands of coal jobs being lost, um, there are approximately 45,000 people who work in coal at all. That's yeah. the entire industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So clearly there's, there's some misinformation there. Uh, but I think the other thing that, that comes to mind that gets important when I, when I think about like the decisions people make in corporations in terms of their environmental responsibility, um, I'm thinking back to Quill brought up the example of like the plastic straws and oceans plastic and all that jazz. There's also this question for me that I think is really important, which is thinking about practically, like I think about like, all right, how do I get people to do from the public health standpoint, like how do I get people to do some, like make a healthier choice? I need to make it as easy as possible for them to make the healthiest choice. I cannot assume that they're going to make the healthiest choice because people make terrible decisions for their well-being all the time. So I need to set up a situation where it's easy. And like we got rid of plastic straws because, you know, sea turtles, right, being injured and, and all this stuff. I'm happy about that. Frankly, though, like plastic straws are not a significant source of plastic in the oceans. Also, Almost I hate hate turtles. How dare you? Okay. They're adorable. Mo moving. Uh, moving on. But I like sea turtles. Um, but regardless. Almost half of ocean plastic is from fishing related gear um, from uh, various places. And so people aren't talking about that. No, like, why are we not having a conversation about changing our fishing regulations? And frankly, it has to also be global because it's not just the United States. We're talking about in oceans um, and in rivers and estuaries. But no one's talking about that because it changes like who's responsible. It's much easier to like, I'm gonna buy paper straws because it's more environmentally sustainability. I have control, I can do something, but the impact is frankly pretty small. So we have to, I think we need to also change the discourse. And this is where I get a little, I struggle with the like, just count on people to buy the more environmentally friendly thing. It's more expensive, it's really hard. I have to convince myself to spend more money sometimes. Right, because I'm like, oh, this is more than I wanted to spend, but it's the more environmentally friendly choice, so I'm going to get it. And so, or this doesn't put farm workers in as much harm from exposure to pesticides. So it, it's not actually that simple. People can't. I think we are more limited on that, and that's where the individual. We have been duped, I think, to say that we just need to make better choices and everything will get better because it will not, because those larger forces will not be fixed by my individual. Yeah, is it, is it kind of like a sustainability tax? And, and what I mean by that is, hey, you know, uh, you shouldn't eat every day at McDonald's, right? But for the mom who's got two jobs, three jobs, doesn't see her kids or kids are struggling in school because mom doesn't have time to do the homework with them. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have time to go to the grocery store and this is a happy meal. It, it, it costs less. Yes, I know going to Whole Foods would be better for my kid, but it's also called whole paycheck for a reason, right? And so yeah. I'm wondering if the same thing, hey, the the more environmentally friendly thing you can buy, is that a feel-good tax? Like, hey, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend more mm -hmm. money, or I gotta I'm 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 Dave Ramsey for life. I'm all about that budget and the snowballing debt. And I'm going, I could buy this nicer shampoo that's more environmentally friendly, but I know that that extra $4 can go to mm -hmm. this bill here. So is environmentalism, given the expense that it costs the consumer at the checkout, is it really a, is the capitalistic quill, is, is, is a capitalistic um, perspective on this uh, or approach to this sustainable if, you want everyone to do it and not everybody's on the same level financially. Like poor people, they're gonna just have to keep ruining the environment because they can't afford to 
or, or and, am I off on that? And have the burden of pollution. And right. have the burden of pollution, right? They can't get healthy and they can't make the planet feel better. Yeah, I think that that's such a good point. And I, I guess I want to elaborate on what I mean by, or kind of elaborate on what are the mechanisms you can use in the capitalist system, capitalist system right? Like, you know, definitely not out here saying poor people should shop at Whole Foods, like right. ignorant. But there's also a lot of bad information out there about what is environmental and what is not. Like there's sort of this virtue signally, you know, conspicuous consumerism, environmentalism, which, you know, I'm very well versed in being from Seattle. Um, and there's a lot of things, you know, you know, just to give you kind of an interesting little tidbit here, like, do you know that the energy input to create a paper bag is much higher than to create a plastic bag? Obviously, plastic bags have other negative effects, but if you're looking at the carbon emissions that go into a paper bag versus a plastic bag, it's a little counterintuitive. There's a lot of cases like that, too. You know, the battery to create um, an electric car, rare earth metals, huge environmental impact, right? So there's, it. you know, our vision of an environmental lifestyle, there's definitely some, some caveats there. But, to, you know, to answer your question, you know, I think that ind individual sustainability is very important not because me unplugging my iPhone charger that I spent, you know, a thousand dollars on the phone, but um, not that that's going to do a significant thing, but I, I think it helps people think about it. And I want more people to be conscious about sustainability, right? Like that sort of builds virtue. And that's a good thing to be thinking about in our lives. But I mean, to go back to, you know, why these oil companies are becoming energy companies because their shareholders demanded it. That's why, um, because consumers are demanding it. And so it's not just, it's not just, you know, individual consumers that are the ones who have to take responsibility for this. And it's certainly not people who are economically disadvantaged who are at fault for not choosing the sustainable option. Um, there's lots of different feedback loops in a capitalist system. And I, I think that, uh, you know, shareholders are demanding it. Investors are in de demanding it and consumers are demanding it. And that's a lot of, you know, forces affecting companies right now. And I think all of that is pushing us in a much more sustainable direction. So that's what, what I more mean by that. Um, and, you know, just on the right, so, so So let me, let me jump in here. Cause I, I, I want to, I do want to get back on track. I, I'm, I see the trajectory of this. I, I think we, we all see it and it's, it's good solid stuff, but I, I want to get back on track here. So um, more often than not, we, we turn to that ballot box, right? So let, let's talk about policies, right? Voters go to the ballot box uh, when we're searching for solutions to uh, climate change, water and air pollution, uh, our, our dependency on fossil fuels. Uh, in what ways do you think the private sector, and you can keep going here, what ways do you think the private sector provides a greater environmental impact than the, than the public sector? And in what ways is the government most effective in protecting the environment? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess... I, I, I guess I've given a, a couple of examples of this. I, I think that the interesting story of the last four years, despite having a president in the White House who's not acknowledged the reality of climate change, um, the private sector has kept going and has actually done some really incredible things on the uh, on the issue of climate change. And I think that that's actually a, a great thing because they have again they have they have that knowledge and they have the you know they're equipped to be able to address these issues in the ways that they affect their um, you know their industries. And so I think that. In terms of lowering carbon emissions in particular industries, somebody who makes a profit and knows the industry in and out is going to be able to do that much better than a regulator here in Washington, D.C., right? Um, and I think that that's a great example of it. I mean, of course, there's a role for the government to play. A big, I think that a good role for the government to play is, 
you know, there, there are programs that the Department of Energy has to invest in early stage energy technologies. That's a great role for the government is to kind of, you know, help kick off research and doing scientific research. Also creating a consistent regulatory environment. That's a really important thing too. I'll just, you know, as an example of this, we built the Empire State Building in a year and 45 days, which is absolutely blows my mind. It, it takes dozens, sometimes dozens of years to set a new nuclear plant. And there are wind plants that are, have been delayed in, um, in permitting for years. And, and I think that that's an interesting example that the government could do a better job of is streamline regulation so we can deploy clean energy and that these innovators can actually innovate and create the technologies and the things that will actually help us address these environmental issues. So that's kind of my, my sense of something that the government could, could do and do better. And, and I think, you know, both private sector and the government sector both have a role to play and are important. Uh, I am a little more skeptical sometimes of the private sector, as you noticed, I'm sure. I mean, oil and gas industry has shifted um, in some of their energy production and the resource production. But part of that's because they don't have as many profits in the future with oil. Right. They're doing it because their bottom line needs them to. Yes, maybe the shareholders do as well, um, but they're also looking at that bottom line. Um, so I think it's not always there. That's where I think sometimes having governmental policies and regulations can help push um, these industries or ensure that they're actually, I think regulations, enforcement of regulations are really important. I do think that the idea that uh, companies, sometimes they know more than the government does about technology and their practice and of producing various things, whether or not they're batteries or something else, supply chains. They're obviously going to know more about that than the government is. And so I, I would hope that there's kind of effective partnerships there to, to develop policies that work. Having streamlined policies is really important. I would love to see more policies have um, not only uh, environmental impact statements, but um, health impact statements, looking at what are the impacts, which include health impact statements typically, or assessments, um, I should say, um, typically also have in environmental justice and health, environmental health uh, assessments as well. So I'd love to see that be a larger part of the projects that we do. It does need to be streamlined, frankly though, things aren't going to be quick for really big impact projects. And I'm okay with a little bit of slow um, if we do it, if the result is that it's more thoughtful and we're ensuring a more equitable distribution of the harms and the benefits. So I think you got to do that. I think you need both government and you need the private sector working together. Um, it's never going to be an either or. That being said, the government can have more sweeping policies that can, can kind of like, it doesn't rely on voluntary actions, right? Me just saying, I need these companies to just do this and I hope that they do, relies on the good will of, of individuals and I'm not that trusting. So I want something to ensure that they're going to do it. If I ask someone to do it, they don't have to. Uh, so I, I like things that ensure that it's gonna happen. That being said, the governments, like there are a number of environmental laws that do not, frankly, I think, um, result in, in adequate protection. I mean, think about in Michigan, we had the, um, this was a few years ago now, there was a proposal to, for Nestle to uh, bottle water. But yeah, to, Great, to take out. Two, 200 million gallons a year, I think it was. 
Yeah, it was a, a lot of a lot of water. Um, there's a public comment period that goes through and uh, positive, like, yeah, do this. The rest were all like, no, don't do this. But guess what? Whether or not the Department of Environmental Quality, which is now the um, Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy um, in Michigan, can approve that, is is it illegal or not? And it's, and it's not illegal. You know, the I, the, the only Isn't thing the decision would... already made by the time they're like, hey, leave a comment. No, it's not. It's not technically already made. Okay. By public comment, it is officially made. There's a there's a leaning, uh, but but despite public comment and concern, that gets passed because it's legal, right? So there are legal limitations, and the legal system operates in a structural system that can be oppressive. Structural racism, right? Does our legal system adequately protect against that? (laughs) Not necessarily very well. And that same thing happens with environmental issues. Okay, so as you are likely aware, uh, in 50 days, we have a national election. Um, it slipped my mind until tonight when I was looking it up. Um, but What's the uh, series on? I don't know. Um, so we have a national election, and when I say 50 days, that is election day, and at various points around the country, uh, they are already voting. We can start voting here in about a week and a half if you want to go up to your clerk's office. Um, so the, the, when it gets down to the nitty gritty, we're talking, when you have to decide on candidates for public office, if your, if your number one or high on your list of issues are environmental concerns, what are the best measures to use when casting your vote? I don't use like one thing. Oh, well, well, let's let's also tack on that. Uh, who are the best names on either side of the aisle in Washington right now on this subject? So the the, the question that Kent asked, then I want to tack on like, hey, let's talk brass tacks. Who are the people? Just holding mem- members of Congress right now, or yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously not the president at the moment. So <laughs> yeah, let, let's 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 talk about that. So. What are the best measures for us? And then are there names of people who we can go, yeah, that that guy, that girl, they got it when it comes to, to this particular issue. Star Lord about to say something. I'm who, sorry. Are, who are your favorite Republicans when it comes to uh when Moshkan comes- was already talking. Moshkan right, was already fine. talking. So Moshkan, you first. Well, I don't I don't have like a simple measure, right? I, I don't I, I just I don't ever think of it in that way. I mean, I do look at and see, you know, you can look at the League of Conservation Voters, see what their endorsements are. Uh or they're kind of how you can see the records on environmental bills, how people have voted. And you can look um, like in Michigan, we have the Michigan League of Conservation Voters. So you have more local um, politicians. So I look at those things. Um, I also generally just kind of look up the the candidates and and look up information about their stances um, and their records on things. You can look at political contributions. So depending on the amount of effort you want to do of your own investigations versus I'm just going to rely on the league conservation voters, right? Or something like that is a, is a typical tactic, uh, but it just depends. Frankly, doing adequate research on each person is the best thing you can do, but you, that takes a lot of effort. And I know practically not everybody's going to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, you know, one thing I would, I would add to that is that, um, and you know we're like like we discussed before. My organization generally comes from the right right of center, and we work with a lot of Republicans. We have an endorsement list. 
it's Republicans. So if you want to see who the top Republicans are on environmental issues, go to acc.eco, check that out. I, I would say that you know, some of the, the other environmental groups, although they don't say, I, I will say that up front, some of the other environmental groups like, frankly, like LCV also are quite partisan. And you'll notice that things are not always, uh, the, the, they're almost all, all Ds on there. And despite some pretty significant legislation that Republicans have helped pass. So I, I think that that's a good place to start. Um, I, I, I really like your point around, you know, particular legislation and that sort of thing. I, I think that looking at who actually co-sponsored bills to invest in research and clean energy, who actually were the co-sponsors of the Great American Outdoors Act that we were talking about before, um, who's doing more than just saying, I support the Green New Deal, but actually co-sponsoring the bills that will help lower greenhouse gas emissions, that's, that's what really matters. Because um, there's a lot of people, because of the echo chamber that exists in the environmental movement, who um, frankly get away with saying all the right things, but not actually doing the hard work of it. Um, in, in Michigan, uh, I, again, I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about Peter Meyer, and he's, I guess, on the other side of the state um, in Southwest Michigan. Uh, but I think he really represents a bright new vision that's much closer to, to, to Teddy Roosevelt and that, that legacy of conservation um, and represents a really bright future for the party that is focused on, on environmental issues. And he's incredible on the Great Lakes as well. I also well, love, I, go ahead. I was gonna say, I also, this is me, not a single issue voter. I love seeing candidates who are intersectional in their approach to environmental issues. Uh, so like, let's talk about jobs, let's talk about healthcare and racism merely because those things are all tied to environmental issues. Uh, and I think that that's where I'm like, I wanna go beyond the typical conservation conversation. Uh, so I'm usually looking at that as well because you know, poor people are going to have, or people who are poor are going to have a harder time prioritizing environmental concerns, even if it matters a lot, because they just don't have the resources, the time um, to really dedicate to that. Well, we, uh, before, before we uh, close things out, just uh, for those of you who are listening, who have never heard of uh, this app, I mean, we're completely uh, connected and also simultaneously disconnected generation. Um, but there are tons of apps that can keep you up to up to date uh, or abreast of what's going on in, uh, in Washington, uh, specifically Washington, not your local politics, but there's a fantastic app called Countable. And what Countable does is it lets you know uh, what bills are in Congress right now. And when you bring it up, uh, Senate Bill 3247 is... Uh, is up right now. Should the U.S. ban fracking by 2025? Uh, House Bill 8015, providing the U.S. Postal Service with $25 billion and prohibiting operational changes ahead of the election. Uh, Senate Bill 1328, should foreign nationals who interfered or seek to interfere with elections be prohibited from entering the U.S.? And so on and so forth. And you can look it up by whatever issue that you're looking at. So just to what uh, Moshkan, uh, to what Quill were saying, hey, you know, look up uh, who's on on what bill? Who you know what what's your record been? This is kind of a, a quick way to to keep track. It sends me notifications of what's being voted on at any given time. I know not most people are going to do that, but it's a fantastic app uh, that is available to you. Um, let's see. Da, 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 open secrets is campaign financing. I don't know what I'm reading. I'm just reading it out loud. You heard it here first. You should probably uh, <laughs> know what you're reading before you read it out loud. Calvin. How do you feel about <laughs> San Diego, Calvin? <laughs> uh, it's on fire right now from what mm -hmm. I've been told, right? The whole state is on fire. Um, but 
we could talk about that offline. Either way, uh, <laughs> I miss I things it. sometimes. There's it. so much out okay. there. I'm sorry. Just type uh, it. But hey, say it. Uh, I want to thank uh, I want to thank uh, Dr. Rajai for being on tonight. I want to thank Quill for being on tonight. Both of you were fantastic uh, guests uh, on on this very important topic for the 2020 election. Um, and for those of you listening to the show, thanks so much for listening to Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. Make sure you check out our website, leadingquestionsnow.com, where you can find all of our episodes from this season and the last however many seasons we're at. I think we're at seven seasons now. So the last six seasons, uh, bios, a calendar of uh, upcoming topics, and even suggest topics for us to talk about. If you're interested in bringing us safely out to your uh, our program, out to your college, university, or organization, email us at hello at leadingquestionsnow.com. And we will get back to you. Don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and of course, the Podcast Detroit app. Please leave us a review. That's very important. And we will see you next week.